We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. A federal lawsuit from Texas is challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act, the landmark 1978 law designed to keep Native American children within Native families in state custody proceedings. The case is also the subject of the podcast, This Land. We'll talk with host Rebecca Nagel about the political interests driving the federal court challenge and its potential far-reaching impacts. Then, fans of The Sopranos will get to see what an adolescent Tony Soprano was like and learn more about the man Tony looked up to in the film prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, coming out tomorrow. We'll talk to the director. That's all next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A custody battle over a Native American toddler has become the basis for a separate federal lawsuit. And Rebecca Nagel wanted to understand why. Nagel is host of the podcast This Land, which in its second season has taken a deep look at a case known as Brackeen v. Holland and found that it has far-reaching consequences, not just for Native children and families, but also the system that upholds Native rights. Here's a clip from the podcast promo. For the past four years, I've been following one case that's now sitting on the steps of the Supreme Court. How did this small step towards addressing generations of family separation become a target? We put a team together and spent a year investigating. We talked to caseworkers, lawyers, background sources, family members, over 100 people. We submitted 60 FOIA requests, read over 10,000 pages of court documents. Every time I thought I got to the bottom of it, the bottom just got lower. This case is a, a front for a bigger legal challenge mounted by various conservative groups that are upset about all sorts of federal rules and regulations. That's a clip from the podcast, This Land, and let me welcome its host, Rebecca Nagel. Welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to have you on. This clip makes clear that you have found that there is a lot at stake in this federal case beyond a custody issue. But to ground us, can you start by explaining the custody dispute that started this all? Like, who are Chad and Jennifer Brackeen, and who was the child at the center of it whom you call Antonio? Right. So um, Chad and Jennifer Brackeen are a white couple who live in the suburbs of Fort Worth. Um, Jennifer is an anesthesiologist. Chad is a stay-at-home dad. 
and they um, felt a Christian calling to become foster parents. Um, their first foster child actually really struggled with the placement and asked CPS to take that three-year-old back. Um, and then in the summer of 2016, they were asked if they were interested in fostering a Native American baby. They actually knew um, before they agreed to the placement that there would be no hope of adopting that child because he was Native and because of this law called the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, that child was in their home for about a year, um, after which time his parental rights were terminated. And so in foster care, kids' parents have about a year um, to work on their case plan. Antonio's parents didn't you know, meet what they needed to do. And so their rights were terminated. And then his tribe, Navajo Nation, within a couple months, identified a Navajo home that was open to adopting a child. And the Brackeens um, went out and got um, a bunch of legal help. So they got help from a family lawyer actually in Minnesota was the first person they contacted and then a family lawyer in Texas. And then it escalated and they got help from a corporate law firm called Gibson Dunn. And I think most extraordinarily, the attorney general of their state um, actually stepped down into the custody dispute. And once those very powerful entities um, showed up, the case almost immediately went their way. Um, within a couple weeks, the transfer to that Navajo home was canceled. And actually the same week that they filed this federal lawsuit, they learned that they would um, win custody of the child. Wow. So this family knew under what you describe as ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, they would not be able to adopt this baby that they were fostering, but then decided that they really did want to because they felt like the child should stay with them after about a year. And even though this is pretty well established that they didn't have that right, they were able to get a whole bunch of really powerful legal help as you lay out just to backtrack really quick, can you explain what ICWA is, like what it was meant to do when it was signed into law in 1978? Absolutely. Um, and so really important context for ICWA is, or the Indian Child Welfare Act is its full name. Um, is what was happening at the time. So in the late 60s, a big national survey found that 25 to 35% of all Native children had been removed from their family and from their tribe by the government. And a couple of things were happening. Um, there was a big uh, program um, through the BIA called the Federal Indian Adoption Project, where the BIA actually gave the Child Welfare League of America money to place Native children in white homes. And so there was this, and then that program was replicated by churches and other agencies. And there was this thinking that inherently um, Native families were inferior and Native kids were better off in white homes. And then something um, that was parallel, um, but more um, less explicit, I guess, was what was happening within child welfare departments in the states. And so a lot of child welfare agencies were removing Native children, um, you know, for reasons like grandma or aunt were raising the kid instead of the biological parent. So a white social worker was coming in and saying that's childhood abandonment and taking the child. And so ICWA is, um, it's a law that does more than one thing, um, which is one of the big misconceptions that happens in these cases. 
cases um, and these cases where you know white foster family wants to adopt a native kid that they're fostering are the minority minority I would say less than five percent and probably smaller than that of cases where we actually see ICWA being used um, and so uh, ICWA is kind of like a set of guardrails of what happens in both private adoption proceedings and child welfare proceedings to try and stop those abuses from happening. And so it gives tribes um, the right to intervene and in some cases move the case to tribal court. It requires um, greater standards from child welfare departments before they terminate parental rights. Um, and basically gives more due process to native parents in that process. And then it sets out placement preferences. You know, if a child can't be reunified with their parents, where they should go next. First is a, a member of their extended family. Second is another citizen of their tribe. And then the last placement preference is another native home. And so that, that's a quick run, rundown of what the law does um, and where it came from. And, and child welfare agencies and experts and researchers like KC Family Programs have called it the gold standard because what research has shown since the passage of ICWA is that not just native kids, but all children in our child welfare systems do better when they're placed with family. So this family, the Brackeens, knew all of this, still sued to be able to have this native child. Why were they able to get so much help from what you point out in your podcast, sort of an unusual array of Republican interests, like Republican attorneys general and libertarian organizations, and as you say, this corporate conservative law firm, Gibson and Dunn? That's because the Brackeen's case is not the first of its kind. And so, um, you know, I think that this federal lawsuit doesn't result from foster parents scrambling to find legal help. It comes from a coordinated campaign to strike ICWA down, searching and looking for plaintiffs. And they found them in the Brackeen's. And they found really, really great plaintiffs who live in a district that has a notoriously radical conservative judge. And so it was the perfect venue um, to bring this federal lawsuit. Um, and so the attack against ICWA, it, you know, it's kind of odd because it's this law that was meant to keep prevent family separation. You wouldn't think it would be that controversial, but in the past decade, it has been challenged more times than the Affordable Care Act. And it's an odd cast of character um, characters. There's private adoption attorneys and um, associations and lobbying groups that represent the private adoption industry. There are corporate lawyers and law firms, like you mentioned, Gibson Dunn. And when we looked into those people, we found... Um, not just overlap, that they are also representing the oil industry um, and the gaming industry, which are two industries that are frequently in opposition to tribes and indigenous rights, um, but they're actually representing clients that are actively attacking indigenous rights. And in those cases, using the same legal arguments that they're making against ICWA. So they took arguments that they used to attack the legality of Indian gaming and basically transported it over to this ICWA case. So it's not a 
leap of logic to think that if they win with ICWA, they can go back to those Indian gaming cases um, where some of these arguments actually didn't prevail and try it again, you know, with a new Supreme Court precedent. Um, and then the last cluster of opposition um, that we found to the Indian Child Welfare Act is a universe of right wing, um, like you said, think tanks. Um, uh, operatives and funding. And the paper trail that we found was that, you know, when this concerted campaign got some of its initial funding to get off the ground, it actually wasn't even about tribal sovereignty, but it was a part of a broader strategy to build conservative power through litigation. Wow, that is a lot. Let me invite our listeners to join the conversation with their reactions and questions about what they're hearing. We were talking about this landmark 1978 adoption law, essentially called the Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA, and the ongoing federal lawsuit that seeks to invalidate it. And what could happen to Native American families and tribes if it were found unconstitutional, but also the broader ripple effect of this. We're talking with Rebecca Nagel, host of the podcast, This Land, which is now in its second season. Nagel is an activist, a writer, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to share with us what are your questions for Rebecca Nagel? What are your reactions to what you're hearing? Have you listened to This Land? What uh, were your thoughts on season one and now your thoughts about what has been happening in season two. Also, if you happen to have any kind of related experience to what you're hearing, whether fostering a Native child or somebody who is trying to get a Native child to be with family in a custody proceeding and would like to share your story, you can do that as well. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rebecca Nagel, host of the podcast, This Land, which is now in its second season. And in this season, it's reviewing an ongoing federal lawsuit that seeks to invalidate ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, and the realization that there is a lot at stake if ICWA is, in fact, found unconstitutional. You can share your questions or comments at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. So just so that I understand where the case is now, you mentioned that it went before a very conservative judge in Fort Worth. And this very conservative judge in Fort Worth did what? 
He took the Indian Child Welfare Act, a 40-year-old statute, and he chucked it out the window, basically. Um, He, you know, um, basically agreed with the plaintiffs on almost all of their on all all of their complaint. So he said that the Indian Child Welfare Act is unconstitutional because it's racial discrimination, um, because it treats, you know, non-native foster kids differently than native ones and the same with foster parents. Um, But the important thing to understand about ICWA is that it's actually based on political status and those children's relationship to indigenous nations. And that's, that's where this case gets into um, scary territory of having broader implications because tribes and tribal citizens have all sorts of laws that treat us differently. Um, And that's not based on race. It's based on our treaty relationship with the U.S. government that goes back, frankly, to prior to the U.S. Constitution. And so if ICWA can't treat people differently based on race. What about Indian health services or treaty rights and reservations? You know, if, if tribes are just a racial category, why can we have governments and police and um, land bases? You know, no other racial category in the U.S. gets to have that. And so that's where this case is really scary. And that's what Judge Reed O'Connor decided. Um, the case was then appealed to an also very conservative appeal court, the Fifth Circuit. And they were basically split on that issue. So they issued a really complicated uh, decision um, where parts of ICWA, a few small parts were unconstitutional, um, some other parts they upheld, but for the most part, um, they were actually split 50-50 and couldn't quite make up their minds, um, which is a big deal that in 2021, a US appeals court is divided on some really basic principles of federal Indian law and tribal sovereignty. And now um, the case is headed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, the Supreme Court is currently considering a petition to review the case. Is that right? That's correct. And so all all parties asked for the Supreme Court to review it, um, including the U.S. federal government, who's the named defendant. Um, And so we're expecting it to be heard um, by the Supreme Court this term. But we'll have to wait and see for sure. I see. Let me go to calls that are coming in, and I'll start with Tracy in San Luis Obispo. Hi, Tracy. Hey, how are you? Great. Good. So I worked ICWA for many, many years on multiple tribes, and it never worked back then. The BIA would have issues with it. The FBI would have issues. The assistant U.S. attorneys for the district. And when we would have issues with children, they take them to IHS, and then they did not want to remove them from tribes, even though it was sexual misconduct and abuse. And it doesn't work. It never has worked. Um, let me yeah. get Rebecca Nagel's reaction. Yeah, how effective has ICWA been in protecting yeah. the rights of Native American tribes and families and children? I, I, I genuinely don't understand the caller's comment because the FBI and U.S. attorneys aren't actually involved in the implementation of ICWA. If there's a criminal case of child abuse on a reservation, um, they would be involved in that. But those cases are completely separate. 
than custody cases. So, um, and that's the same way in regular child welfare. So a custody case um, where a child might be removed um, for abuse or neglect is um, not a criminal proceeding and what the caller was describing were criminal proceedings. And those issues of prosecuting crimes on, um, tri on tribal land actually do have deep um, problems. And those are rooted in the fact that our tribes are not allowed to prosecute non-native perpetrators. So those cases do go to the feds and often aren't prosecuted by the feds. Um, ICWA, when it is implemented, is implemented um, by social workers um, and those can be tribal or non-tribal. And then there, it's also um, what it really governs is what happens in family court. And so it's family court judges that are interpreting and implementing the statute, just to clarify. Well, let me go to caller Walter in San Leandro. Hi, Walter. Hi. Uh, yeah, this, is, uh, this lawsuit is strictly a continuation of the white supremacist uh, basis on which this country was founded regarding the Native Americans. Uh, it's an, an attempt at an extermination of the Native uh, peoples and an elimination of their way of life. Uh, if any, well, if any uh, listener has an interest in this, I suggest they read a book called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Walter, thanks. Rebecca, you have a reaction? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, that for generations in the project of genocide, Native children have been the tip of the spear and have been a convenient tool for that project. And so we had the boarding school era um, where children were um, sent to basically assimilation and forced labor camps um, and literally had their languages beaten out of them. That was followed um, almost immediately by what I described before, the Indian Adoption Project. And a lot of Native people today see the present day foster care system as a continuation of that. And so um, I think too, one thing that's important is that in all of those moments of history um, where we look back now and we see how boarding schools were actually part of the project of genocide, at the time, um, the U.S. government and the churches that were operating them framed them as charity and that this was what was best for Native children. And we have a lot of the same rhetoric around these anti-ICWA cases today, um, although there isn't research or evidence to back this up. Um, you know, the plaintiffs claim that ICWA harms Native children and that's not in the best interest of Native children. Um, and I think we have to, because of the history of the United States, be really careful when we get into a territory of non-Native folks saying what is best for Native children. Because when that has happened in our history before, it has created a lot of harm. Let me go to caller Eric in San Jose. Hi, Eric. Hi, yeah. Um, yeah, this is a very personal issue to me. I, I grew up in uh, foster care, and even though I'm Caucasian, my longest standing placement was actually with a Cherokee family. And um, I just always resent um, these foster children being used as political poker chips, you know? I mean, in this particular case we're talking about, sure, I'm, I know there's a lot of law and there's long standing treaties, but there's a, a child who spent a year with a family. And to have them ripped away from that family to go to, you know, to have to start all over again with, with who knows what, 
it's just not fair to the child. You know, I think the interest of children should be paramount in these cases beyond, you know, the broader implications for tribal law, you know, as we've been discussing here, right? Well, and I, I don't see that being put being put forward. I see a lot of, you know, historical discussion about, you know, children being taken from tribes, but I don't see that, you know, currently it's very hard to get into the foster care system. And parents have to be doing something, you know, pretty terrible, actually, for, for kids to get into that system. And then after they've had that trauma to have them ripped out of a family and put in a new one, you know, I, I think that, that should be the primary interest of, uh, of this case. Eric, thanks. I appreciate you sharing your personal experience as well. I, I would encourage you, though, to listen to the podcast because, Rebecca Nagel, you really do wrestle with this question of what's best for a child, especially very early on in the episodes uh, where you talk about uh, the the argument about the trauma of removing a child who has been with a family for some time and potentially bonded yeah. with that family, but also on the other side of this, what it's like to remove a family from their tribe, or a child from their tribe. I think too, like if we want to talk about attachment, um, I think the way that racism shows up in these cases is that the white foster families aren't the only people that these foster children have been raised by and spent time with, significant time, but often they're the only relationships that we talk about and we prioritize. And so this one kid, Antonio, um, he was actually raised for the first year of his life by his grandparents. Um, and he was removed and placed into foster care because of his biological parents' underlying substance abuse. Um, but his grandparents still wanted to raise him, but they were told no by social workers. Um, there was another child, so the, the, the actual federal lawsuit is extremely complicated. Um, but there, it, it involves three non-native foster parents. And there is a child in Minnesota um, who spent, she spent the first three years being raised by her grandma, again, because of her parents' substance abuse disorder, she was placed in foster care. And it took her grandmother three years um, to be able to get custody back of that child. Um, and during the, those three years, she spent about 18 months with a non-native foster home. And they say that because of those 18 months that she had bonded with them, that that was the most significant placement and that that's where she should stay. They're still saying that. She's now 10. So she's lived seven of the 10 years of her life with her grandmother. And so I think we really need to talk about how um, families of color, um, Native families and Black families in particular, and particularly um, when those families are poor, what attachments are, um, are valued. And also, I mean, if you look at the argument that the plaintiffs are making about, you know, okay, this child has spent this much time in our home, so that's where he should stay. Um, they actually contradict themselves. You know, the Brackeens, like if that was their gold standard, the first child that they ever fostered, they asked CPS to take that child back um, because he was difficult. Um, and then they actually have now won custody of a second native child, um, Antonio's younger half sibling. Um, and at the time that they fought for and won custody of that other native child, she had actually never lived in 
their home. And that attachment hadn't happened at all. And so I think there's a lot more going on here than even just that story of, okay, this is where the child has spent the most time. So this is where the child should stay. Like if that was the standard that the plaintiffs would use, it actually contradicts some of the arguments that they're making when you dig into the underlying custody case. And then I know I've taken a long time to explain this, but I just want to say one more thing which is that I think this argument about attachment is all about perspective. Because if you zoom in and you look at that toddler who's two and had spent, I think, about a year um, with the Brackeens at the point that the custody became contested, you know, that's a long time in that child's life. But if you zoom out and you think about that child when they're 10, when they're 15, when they're 20, when they're a young adult and they're trying to figure out who he is as a native person, as a Navajo person, as a Cherokee person, and has been raised completely separated from that world. Um, what does that do to that person over time? And what we hear from adult adoptees when we listen to adult adoptees is that many of them really struggled with that identity formation, even into adulthood. Um, and that that in and of itself was a loss that they experienced. I want to read a comment from Andres who writes, I am an indigenous transracial adoptee that was raised in a conservative rural white family. I know personally the harms that are caused by well-intentioned white adoptive families, often veiled in love, that place their agendas over the long-term wellness of the child. I can say we grow up to be adults. We wonder where we come from. We are stolen from our lands. We are stolen from our cultures. And when we are children, we don't know that one day we will rise out of the fog and spend more years than we've been alone alive, trying to remember what was lost and taken. It almost sums up exactly what you just said, Rebecca Nagel, this listener, Andres. Yeah, and I think, I think with adoption and foster care in general, we all need to pause and listen to adult adoptees and people who have been in foster care because transracial adult adoptees have been speaking out and saying, hey, this didn't turn out so great for us. And, and they've been saying that for a while. And I think um, there can be an unwillingness I have found in my reporting um, to hear that feedback. And I think it's really, really important for us to create a child welfare system and adoption systems that really look out for the best interest of the child. I want to play another cut from your podcast. This is Amber Kanesba-Krati, a delegate on the Navajo Nations Council, explaining the structure of Navajo families. Literally, when you see like a tree and the roots that are sprouting on the bottom and how they interconnect and intertwine and are there to support one another, that's, that's the family structure. So it's not one or two individuals. It's this whole system, right? It's this whole system. Do you think that that family structure, are you seeing reflections of that in U.S. policy on Native children's welfare today? Or is this attack, do you feel like, the overarching view of what's best for Native families? Yeah, I mean, I think that we can look kind of like what I mentioned before um, at the underlying custody cases of the four Native kids whose, you know, custody cases led to this federal lawsuit 
um, all of them, all of them had a blood relative who wanted to raise them. And all of those blood relatives got pushed back, whether that pushback was from a social worker that told them no, a family court judge that ruled against them, a pushy white foster parent who called them up and told them why they shouldn't want to adopt their relative. Every, every Native family member got pushed back. And there was one Native grandma, a white earth nation citizen in Minnesota, who was able to win custody of her granddaughter. And she had to fight that legal battle for six years. It took her three years of fighting the child welfare system. And then because the non-Native foster parents after they lost custody filed a lawsuit, she had to spend another three years in court fighting them along with her tribe and actually the county who at that point who had taken her side. Um, and then after six years of fighting, she was able to adopt her um, granddaughter. And so in even just these cases that are supposed to tell the story about how ICWA rips Native children um, from loving non-Native foster homes, I investigated them. And what I found was actually a system that's still um, removing Native children from their family and from family members who want to raise them. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that lack of recognition of kinship relationships and the value in those kinship relationships and seeing, you know, extended family as a resource and even seeing the value in those relationships um, is something that um, child welfare systems are still missing. Well, there is a lot to learn from the podcast and a lot that you grapple with. Casey Tweet's fantastic podcast, highly recommend, uh, that I encourage listeners to listen to. And Rebecca Nagel, really appreciate you coming on to give us some context and to share more information about it. Rebecca Nagel, host of the podcast, This Land, an activist, writer, and citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And my thanks to Susan Britton for producing this segment. We have another one coming up next. This time we'll talk The Sopranos, so stay with us for that. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Desert Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them. 
with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.